Lesbians speaking. Lesbians speaking. Lesbians speaking. Lesbian speaking may contain adult content and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Ellie Johnson, who co-authored a novel with her father, Kurt Johnson. It is called The Barons, a novel of love and death in the Canadian Arctic. It is an amazing story of uh, this journey that these two women go through together and one ends up finishing it on her own. You're going to have to read the book to find out more about it. I'm not even kidding when I say this is my favorite book to date that I have read. Get your copy today at all of your major retailers. You can find it, The Barons, a novel of love and death in the Canadian Arctic. Welcome to this episode of Lesbian Speaking. Before I get to the actual episode, I do want to ask for your help. I want to be able to grow my equipment, my online performance, and grow my audience for the podcast. And in order to do that, I need some audience help here. Uh, Make sure that listening to this podcast, you give it some stars, you give it a comment, share it to your friends and family, get everybody to listen to it. I also have a Patreon where you can go and support the Lesbian Speaking Patreon. I have set up a Venmo if you do not want to become a Patreon subscriber where you can go and help out there. And I have also launched a merch line. That's right. Very short, simple, sweet to the point merchandise that you can buy for lesbian speaking, support the podcast, get me rolling. I want to make sure I get more episodes out and I want to do it right and do it good for you guys. Uh, You'll see all of the links to this in this episode's bio. Uh, So yeah, make sure to check it out. Give me some support. Welcome to this episode of Lesbian Speaking. Today, I am speaking with the co-author, Ellie Johnson, uh, wrote the book The Barons with her father, Kurt Johnson. Welcome to the podcast, Ellie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. I wanted to let you know, I did finish the book the other day, um, and I have never read a book that actually brought tears to my eyes. And oh, really? Fantastic. Uh, yes. And I, I finished it at Starbucks, filled with people, trying to hide the fact <laughs> that I'm sitting here bawling over a book. But it was so well written. Um, d- you guys did a fantastic job telling this story. Well, I really appreciate it. You know, the ending is one of my favorite uh, parts of the book. It went through many iterations, and I'm, I'm really excited for everyone to discover it on their own. And hopefully not in a Starbucks surrounded by people, but uh, to each their own. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what? It's it, it was just a great adventure. I couldn't put the book down, actually. It's, uh, it's about uh, a canoe trip on the Thalons, but it's, mm-hmm. it's more than that because it's about the story of the two characters, the main character, Lee, great name, by the way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Holly, uh, who had been on this trip previously, although just once. Yep. Yep. And Which this is essentially my, my background with uh, that trip as well. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because you went on this trip uh, with a group of folks. And mm-hmm. so you have been able to speak to your particular experience. Yeah. So when I was 18 years old, I went through a a camp I had been going to through much of my youth. I was sent uh, to the Thalon with a counselor who is 
about, I think she, Melissa, like 20, 22, 23 at that point, and two other girls my age. And we did about 500 miles of somewhere around uh, between 47, 48 nights on trail. 47 or 48 nights. Yeah. Wow. So that, and that's the, one of the questions that I had is because the book is about the journey was supposed to start out with two, um, Mm -hmm. and it ended up just being one finishing the journey. And in the description of the book, it does, uh, state it's of love and death. So, uh, there is a loss during the trip, but what is the time span? They would have planned initially 47 days or 47 nights as well. Yeah, they follow, um, well, pretty much the exact same route. They just end up leaving trail earlier than I did. I, we finished it and paddled straight into Baker Lake, um, which is a bay that uh, flows like south into Hudson Bay. Right. Okay. Okay. So still such an arduous journey. Absolutely. Yeah, entirely. And um, yeah, it was just the four of us in two boats and we didn't see another living soul until around day 42, 43, when a, a man and his son came up to check on us and let us know that there was a bear on the other shore to be wary of. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And now did you encounter a bear such as happened in the story as well? Yeah, you know, not, um, the bear encounter I had was very similar to, uh, when the grizzly is feeding on, uh, a muskox corpse at one point when they come across it. But when I saw it, it was really just sitting there. We turned a bend in the river and I thought, oh, that's a really big boulder. And then the boulder turned around and looked at us, um, and then lumbered away. And that was the one time we saw a grizzly and, I wouldn't have had it any other way. You do not want to encounter a grizzly, particularly when you're not in a boat. Because while grizzlies can swim, they're less inclined to chase you as right. you paddle away. And you can cross, you know, to the other shoreline um, for camping as well. But, yeah, you don't want to encounter one face-to-face. <laughs> no, no. The book, The Barons, uh, again, an amazing story. The, it was co-written with you and your father, correct? Yes. Yes. And it is the story, a love story, uh, with two women. And how exactly was that tackling that topic with your father? Well, so essentially how the story came to be is that um, I, I was going to college in Vermont at the time, and I'm, in, I'm an English major, and my dad wanted me to write a short story about um, two women who go to the Phelan, um, and one of them doesn't doesn't make it. And he was like, that'd be such a great idea for a short story. And I was like, um, frankly, I'm busy. I have a lot of assignments. Uh, you go write it. <laughs> and so he did. And he went and wrote a little novella. Um, but he really likes the story. I really like the story. And so we decided to go back together and kind of work on the story and build it out, build these characters out. And that led us to a lot of um, really earnest discussions about, I mean, me growing up, my sexuality, um, you know, ac- you know, actual intimacy, having to have conversations about like what those dynamics are like between women, um, both within a relationship and on trail. And yeah, at times they were hard and at times it was very eye-opening and we definitely um, 
learned a lot about each other through the process and there was a lot of uh, beer and pool involved. Yep. <laughs> I think what we ended up with was a really honest account of a relationship. You know, it really is. It's it's not just the honest count of the relationship, but within the, the dynamic of the atmosphere in which they're tackling. So there was yeah. a, uh, a couple of points in the book where Lee says, I don't even know how I can begin to describe what I've gone through. And in my mind as the reader, I'm like, oh, you did it. You totally did it. We were there with you through all of this, through the creation of these relationships um, not just with Holly, uh, her girlfriend, but with her father, Jake, uh, and through all of the turmoil that, that she went through in order to carry her lover through these lands. Um, and the storytelling that came across with it, um, beginning with Holly and then Lee continuing the storytelling throughout the book, just showed all of the dynamics within that lifetime. So whose idea was it to incorporate the storytelling with the adventure? Well, I attribute it uh, entirely to my dad. He was kind of the one who, from the top down, really constructed um, the story elements and the story in general. Uh, I think in just a lot of ways it becomes about, you know, how my experiences get translated into the story that is um, both of ours in a very true way, which is, which is why both of our names are on the book. Right. Now, have either of you experienced um, watching, viewing an emergency rescue to that level? Uh, to that level, no. Uh, <laughs> I worked as an equipment manager in the camp that sent me to the Thalon for three years. And uh, I definitely saw a lot of uh, emergency scenarios, but none where anyone was at risk of life or, or limb, uh, right. let's say. There have been uh, quite a few incidences, particularly with camps um, that are similar. So I went to Camp Wijiwagan, which is on... Uh, which is in Ely in northern Minnesota, but uh, there was a camper from Camp Minogin who uh, survived a bear attack, and actually he wrote a he wrote a book about it. And his name escapes me right now. And I apologize, but uh, yeah, it, it, the, <laughs> these environments are not sanitized because there's 18 year olds wandering around in them. Um, right. Right. But well, I it's... was lucky enough to get out without having to see any emergency evacuation scenarios. We we did some uh, risk assessment and took some risks that we were prepared to take, right. which could have gone very wrong. But um, you know, we finished our route, which is the biggest accomplishment anyone can make when they go out uh, into the backwoods. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it is a very arduous route here that you're speaking about. I mean, you hundreds and hundreds of miles, 450 miles? Yeah, um, 500 miles uh, was more about what we took with the headwaters and down through the last portions of the river. But the river itself, I think, spans somewhere around 470 miles. Right, that, and that's ridiculous. You know, I'm thinking about maybe taking a walk for a mile later, so that'll be, it. <laughs> that'll be as yeah, far as I know, get. Yeah, it, it was, it's not easy still. It's not like, I don't, we didn't train for weeks and weeks and weeks to prepare to go out there. 
we just went out there and got stronger as we went. The days got longer. Um, we took more risks later in the trip that we maybe wouldn't have earlier in the trip when we were still getting used to the terrain and uh, the differences, the, the incredible differences to canoeing and camping anywhere else in the world to the Barrens. It is a very unique environment. Right. Now, speaking of your trip, uh, one of the pieces that was really instrumental, no pun intended, in the story was the pack guitar. Yeah. Is that something you yourself play or your father plays? No, uh, I do not play the guitar, but my counselor, Mo, she did bring a pack guitar. Okay. And it was a very important part of our trip, uh, singing and you know, coming together through music and also working through these songs together was like a, a big bonding source for us. But, um, yeah, I, I do find that as like an important way to connect with yourself and almost hear your own voice out in the middle of nowhere sometimes. Right. And that's definitely what the characters had done. Holly had begun that with her playing. And then after she had her accident and passed, uh, Lee continued to play what very little that she had in order to connect to Holly still without her. Yeah, and I there. think there's something very particularly tragic in being left with a guitar you don't know how to play as well as the person you loved. Right, right. And with that, uh, if if you had the chance to go back to the Thalon with a partner, is that something that you envision doing again in life? Oh, entirely. Um, I, my partner now, I, we've been together for about five and a half years at this point. Um, and she, she just started canoeing about, uh, two years ago through, through me. I started like teaching her how, and we still need to do our first like full week, um, out in the boundary waters, but we're working up to it. And I, I'm not going to throw her into it, uh, with the same frivolity that Holly does leave, but right. Yeah, I do want to return someday. I, I think I do want to return with my with my partner, but I also just want to return with uh, myself and whoever is equipped to go with me. It's an incredible area, and it's but it's also it's very inaccessible. It requires a lot of money, resources, planning that it's hard to do without the um, structural support of a outfitter or camp system. Right. Let's take a break to. Do a little ad time for me. That's right. I have to pay the bills on this podcast. Crazy talk. But guess what? I am setting up some content on my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash lesbian speaking. If you go and sign up for $5 a month, you're going to get some exclusive sneak peek stuff on me, my everyday life. Uh, the backside of what I do here on the podcast, and you know what, probably just the dog sitting around. Who knows? But go and check it out. It is patreon.com forward slash lesbian speaking. I mean, here it is. It is barbecue season. And have you been to a barbecue and thought, what are you doing with your meat? Nobody likes to put plain old meat in their mouth. Are you kidding me? You want to spice it up? Get you some Dano seasoning and that will get you some tasty, delicious meat that you really want to put in your mouth. If you want to get some Danos, go to danoseasoning.com forward slash R-E-F forward slash lesbian speaking. Get yours today. Yummy. 
Now, do you feel uh, in writing this, uh, both you and your father, because your father is an avid canoeer too, uh, do you feel that Holly was somewhat irresponsible for taking Lee on this big adventure in that way? Yes and no. I think that, like, yes, entirely in the area she did with the expertise, the resources um, they arrived with. Uh, but I'd say the biggest mistake, and anyway, if anyone asked me, like, the biggest mistake they undertook uh, was only bringing one emergency contact resource. Right. Um, the beacon, uh, as it's called. Um when we went on trail, we had a beacon and a satellite phone for satellite cellular communication. And we kept them in two different boats in two different packs. So that it was very unlikely that if something happened to one, something would happen to the other. Um, just like, you know, if your beacon gets damaged and you can't call for help or an evac when you need to. And I mean, the beacon doesn't even allow you to communicate. It's just a means of pinging, uh, here I am, I need help. And, um, I'm pretty sure at the time that we were out there, if you set off your beacon, they would immediately send out the Canadian military to get you. Yeah, um, that's that's pretty intense. Yeah, so the satellite phone is uh, more preferable if you're ever in an area that remote, just because you can like call a specific resource and tell them exactly what's going on, what you need. Um, you know, if you just need a food drop because you're going to starve if you don't get food then you want to be able to organize that and not just call the military to come get you. Right. Yeah, I was I was a little bit surprised when I started reading and I saw that they were only coming in with that. They didn't um, report that they were even going there. Uh, the pilot had to ask them all of these questions. And I felt, I don't think Holly really knows what she's doing was kind of my thought process. But as you learn about her and her character, you learn that she really is a risk taker. And it's not that she's being unprepared. It's that she's just someone who says, let's go and do it. It'll be good. Yes. Yeah. And I, I will say that there is also many artistic licenses to be taken uh, for the for the sake of creating drama. Right. Uh, don't do a lot of what Holly does. But at the same time, go out camping, go find yourself in nature and yeah, go explore whitewater. Just do it within... Uh, the bounds of safety, respect the water is what I tell anyone. You have to have a deep respect for the water um, because it, things can go bad really quickly uh, if you are not in full control of the situation. Right, exactly. Now, have you had a time where you faced uh, some sort of, a, not necessarily danger, but even a scary event when you were on the water? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, there was quite a few. Um, well, there was... Uh, a couple of sets where we almost dumped. There was one in particular where we were forced down a section of the river that was like, the that was actually in the runoff of the canyon, uh, which is where the titular event takes place. Uh, and we saw we were approaching a set in high water and it had these like three foot standing waves but we couldn't pull off and inspect it or even decide if we wanted to run it. There was no route supportage and we were being swiftly pulled down. And so we just had to get it together, make sure the 
boats were pointed straight ahead, uh, find the line as quickly as we could and as efficiently as we could and just get through it quickly. We took on a lot of water, but both boats got through it fine. Um, and we pulled off, but it was definitely a scary situation. And later on in the trip, uh, we had been stuck at an island for, it was going on three days, and we were at risk of not being able to finish our route if we didn't get off that island. But the wind was really bad on a big open lake. And in an area like the Barrens where there are no trees, the wind um, can create very, very dangerous scenarios on the water. And so we did a crossing that was about, you know, at one point we were a mile from shore, a mile to the next island, and there was these full like meter to two meter waves that were just rocking the boat. And I was like, Oop, um, if we go in now, we have no options. Right. Uh, <laughs> so you just keep moving forward and try to keep your wits about you and be smart. There's no day in an area like that that doesn't pose some kind of danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's something that you really hit on the book very well when Lee was uh, canoeing with herself and trying to navigate these waters the descriptors that you have in there with the how the boat is bouncing through the rocks and through the water and trying to get control and just the time that you took in order to describe what was happening it really made you feel like you were there well yeah and I really appreciate that that's hours and hours of uh, my dad and I sitting and discussing exactly the sensations, like not only the logistics, but the sensations of um, these kind of environments. And I mean, in particular, the white water that uh, Lee ends up doing is unique because she's doing it alone in a boat. And um, it's a very different, like even like the structure of how you paddle um, and how you control a boat is different when it's just you in it. A canoe is meant to be canoed by like two people. Right. So um, there was a lot of, uh, you know, exploration learning that even I had to do to um, kind of figure out how these particular sets would be different with just one person. Cause while I've uh, solo paddled a set before it was nowhere near um, the kind of sets in, in the environment that, you know, Lee was undertaking that incredible, incredible challenge. Exactly. And that's like where you even talk about the portaging process Mm -hmm. where she had to carry this and go back and carry that and go back. Um, and, and the sadness of the story is carrying her girlfriend's body from place to place as well. And I'm thinking in my head, even as Holly was describing doing this prior to her passing, were they going to, this is, see, I know nothing about canoeing, but do you take the packs and load them into the canoe and two per person lift it? Or do you carry the packs and do you put them over your head? Like, what's the best best way to do this? Well, so the packs we had were um, square cut Duluth packs. So they were just like backpacks with a hip harness. Okay. Very bulky. They don't look like, um, you know, like backpacking packs where they're tall and built to like distribute weight. They're built to keep a certain amount of weight on your body without you falling over. Okay. So our food packs were looking at about, you know, like 120 pounds or between 80 and 120, depending on where in the trip and how full they were and how many we had. Um, We started with about six, I think, between the four of us. And, 
we just would carry those on our back on one trip and we'd usually do two trips um with one with canoes and lighter packs so you can switch off and the other one with everyone has a heavier pack but we'd have to do most portages two to three times and you just you're just hucking stuff across mossy terrain there's no real um like trails the portages are really marked with cairns so you don't lose track of like your surroundings because it all looks very similar and it's all just mossy like soft um almost marsh that you're stepping through it's not they're not easy hikes and it's even harder when you have a canoe and the wind is blowing it and they act like a kite you have to have spotters to make sure you don't blow away yeah and that back and forth process i just couldn't imagine lee going through that and doing that on her own and it was kind of a i couldn't um, imagine it either i mean i i had to but at the same time the idea of having to do any of what i did alone is daunting (laughs) yeah and the 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 bad blessing, the good blessing, bad blessing, uh, is losing one of the packs. Uh, unfortunate, but one less pack to carry, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean that she ultimately gets lucky because starvation doesn't become a part of the story. And early on in the process of writing the story, we kind of discussed if. Uh, we wanted that to be a part of it. And we were like, no, that's writing a very different survival story, but also having so little to subsist on and not a lot of variety uh, creates its own long-term challenge. It does. And you were describing very well the powdered eggs and oats and such. And I'm just thinking of my time in the military when we get the MREs and we'd be too lazy to cook them up properly. And we just throw water and down it. (laughs) I'm like, oh, I know that feeling. Yeah, we definitely had some of that. We were lucky on our group because we had really good cooks. And I know my dad is probably speaking a lot, um, too, from his personal experience. We talked a lot about food and the kind of food that I took out. But he also went um, to backpacking camp when he was younger, uh, Camp Eastman, uh, out of the same area that uh, Camp Wijewagon operates out of. And... So he also had experience in particular with kind of what Jake the Snake talks about in survival aspects, those old, you know, 60s and 70s era tactics and packs and foods and stuff like that. Right. Now, speaking of Jake, there is a lot of detail that goes into the process um, when it comes to the protective services getting involved um, and his lifestyle and the process that happened thereafter. Have you or your father known anybody who had fallen into the protective services realm in order for you to get all of that uh, knowledge of how that would happen? Um, I can't speak on that personally. Um, I, I don't really, I don't know as far as my dad's concerned, not anything that comes to mind. Uh, specifically, I know that um, we have had experiences historically where we've had to at least very much know uh, the processes of uh, CPS and social services. But I think in a lot of ways that's drawn from uh, my dad's research as to what would happen now um, and other things. I know that that character, and I actually just found this out recently because um, a lot of uh, the aspects of the Jake the Snake story and Nebraska are actually from more of my dad's 
childhood. I spent time in Nebraska growing up because that's where his family is from. But a lot of that, too, is like uh, his experiences and time in Nebraska. And apparently his mother knew a a man who was uh, kind of in the same way as Jake. He he went to Harvard, but he was an eco-anarchist who would hide out in his bunker and threaten to shoot you if you came on his property. Right. And And I guess Jake is bred from my dad's desire to figure out why a man would do that to himself and maybe to others and what ideas is he hoping to impress upon the world yeah yeah you know it's interesting I actually related to it because I had known somebody in my life who was a Jake the Snake and who had a daughter Lee um and actually lived that lifestyle and yeah child protective did have to come in and uh Ultimately, she uh, became awarded to her aunt. So it was me reading this. I was like, oh, I can very much relate to this story. Uh, I know these steps that happen in this process. And it was actually very quite accurate. Well, you know, that is super interesting to know because I know that's a lot of my my dad's personal research into uh, the background of eco-anarchist types. He has a book right now that he's working on selling, uh, Las Vegas Turnaround, that deals a little bit more with, uh, well, that and another book he wrote deals with more in the minds of these uh, psychosis and the conspiracy nuts and the kind of people who live on the fringes of society. He, um, like, rode the rails when he was a teenager and worked as a nightclub manager in Vegas for almost a decade. And he certainly um, interacted with a lot of people who live on the fringes of society and you start to question why um yeah, and what how, you there? Also, how do you operate in a day-to-day basis and keep these beliefs and keep them behind closed doors right now do you have plans uh to create another book with your father at the moment uh no he's got a few of his stories he's in the backlog and I myself am working through some of my uh, own stories because he's you know is trying to realize his dream of becoming an author now 60 years in the making and I'm trying to realize my dream of being an author since I graduated college a year ago so it's uh we're in very different places in in that sense but I don't think we're opposed to it I think um if and when the right story strikes, that is definitely something that we would both be open to. I mean, we've grown uh, closer as a result of this process, and right. we love discussing the stories we're working on. I think in some way a lot of our stories are um, worked on together, particularly the ones I try to, to work through. Now, you say you grew closer in this process. There was two, two different types of um, coming out stories within this story with Lee and um, Holly very much just hiding her identity from her family. How was it with you and your coming out story with your father? Um, I'm the uh, I'm the outed story. I was the person who you know I, I trusted someone in middle school. Yeah. Um, to keep my secret, I wasn't ready to share with the world, and just. I actually found out, you know, like months later that she had told a group of girls at a sleepover and it kind of got around school, but everyone was kind of like, I don't know, this seems weird to talk about. Yeah. It was, it was was hard. Yeah. And then it happened again when I got to high school and started dating someone and that got around and 
essentially my mom started like overhearing um from like all my friends and stuff just things that she was starting to put together the pieces of uh my sexuality and my story and you know frankly I'm I'm a very um I seem very gay so I think my mom was the only person who was really shocked like oh she's dated men before and my dad was like um yeah but uh, she wears boots every day to high school and hasn't <laughs> dated a guy since sixth grade. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and is that really she, dating? She, like, <laughs> asked me directly, are you gay? And I kind of uh, slammed the door in her face and was like, I don't want to talk about it and avoided her for days until finally she uh, texted me, hey, I'm picking you up from school. Um, and I'm pretty sure she said, um, I'm picking you up from school if – you don't let me pick you up from school. I'm locking the doors and you have to find somewhere else to sleep. And so I was (laughs) like, well, it's time to talk to my mother. All right. And so she just drove somewhere and we had a direct conversation. And I think the worst thing uh, about it was just her saying that she, you know, is terrified for me because the world is scary and rotten and she wants it to be easy for me. Right. I said, well, it was never going to be easy for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a very similar conversation that my mother had with me too at that age. I think it's hard because it's like, you don't want to, you you never want to be the person who says, you know, this vision you had of my life, Mm -hmm. it's not going to look like that. Right. Right. And that was something that, was very much captured with Holly and her inability to discuss that. And even in, in her, without giving too much information away, but you do find out some things that her parents do say that are along the lines of that type of a conversation as well. Yeah. And I think Holly's story speaks to just like um, some more like friends I know who have had very similar experiences, uh, particularly with, you know, uh, families or backgrounds that carry a more weight, whether it's religiously or financially or just socially. Um, sometimes just having to say to your parents, like, my life is not going to look like how you want it to look is one of, going to be one of the hardest conversations you have. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> I think that's, that's always going to be challenging. I don't think that's one of the first things that's going to change. Um, I think even as things get better for LGBTQ plus um, just the fact that you're always going to have to be the person who says, no, actually, I'm different. I think that's the hardest thing about any of these experiences. Right. Right. So with the experiences, uh, to anybody who's listening, what would you say is the best part of someone who's used to being in the city, used to just doing the groove? to getting out on it, not necessarily a trip like this, but to getting out on the water and getting into nature for at least a couple days. What what are the benefits that you say that they could have from this? Oh, a multitude of benefits. I, I feel like I really want to speak to the water in particular has been a huge source of uh, joy and peace in my life and my upbringing. Our cabin's on an island Um, My dad has his captain's license, so uh, he would charter boats to go sailing. Um, I believe that the water is so 
perfect of an example of what the world has to offer, both magnificent and violent and carving huge canyons through the earth to keeping you alive on a molecular level and looking beautiful and still on a lake. I just think that it's really important to get out in any way in water, whether you go like swimming, boating, I think is so peaceful. Canoeing is so peaceful or even just like go down to the nearest river or pond you can find and just wander along the banks, look at the rocks, look at the little bugs and creatures that make it their home. It's a really holistic and beautiful experience to just be near the water and to be in nature in general. But yeah, I can't speak highly enough about um, the different ways that water has such an impact in our environment. Yeah. Yeah. And for those of you listening who say, I can't go hiking, I can't do canoeing, I feel for you in the same way. I got myself a paddleboard. I get out on the lake and I just lay on that thing. So you guys, paddleboards are, are it. If, <laughs> if you can't do the canoe, get the paddleboard. I recommend like fishing too. Like it's yeah. just an excuse to get outside. You can get like a $30 bad rod from Walmart, and stick a hot dog on it and see what you pull up. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Or, or just, you know, go walk around. I think that even walking in the city and paying particularly close attention to what elements of nature pop up. Right. can really, you know, change the way you perceive your own urban environment. Right. Now, is there anything in the book uh, that was, because there are, there are some intimate scenes in there um, mm-hmm. that kind of made you go, oh, I'm having this conversation with my dad on how to write this. I'm feeling kind of cringy. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean... As my dad would say, if you ask him the same question as many people have, he said, like, yeah, no one wants to ask their daughter about sex. I don't think any parent actually wants to know that. Um, But there's something to be said about just deciding that it's worth knowing, asking in an honest way, in an open way, and being ready to hear the answer. Right. And, you know, at times we would have these conversations while my partner was sitting right next to me, and she gave her input on her upbringing, And it was, um, I think, just an exercise in, you know, be open, beget openness. You know, it's there was just a lot of story that was brought about by just us willing to be um, clear with what we went through and kind of the things that we um, both like and don't like and find threatening and non-threatening and also just like the normalcy of uh the dynamics of you know particularly with women you know how uh just the casual way we date and interact is so different but also so similar and it was just I think it was interesting to reflect on a lot of these uh, things I had stopped considering actively in order to talk to my dad about it right you know, as again, it was one of those things that was done in just such a great way that it uh, very much resonated in, hey, this is how lesbian relationships are, and this is how we speak to one another and how we physically communicate to one another. And it was just done with such grace. Well, I attribute that to my dad really wanting to know and taking our experience for what it was and not trying to um, elaborate or even try to sanitize it for the sake of his artistry. I think he was really just trying to capture those characters, those experiences as they spoke to, to my past experiences and to who he believed they were and were supposed to be. Right. 
Now you you state that you're going to work on writing yourself. Yeah, I, yes, I am working on writing myself. Okay, so you have a particular story that you have a focus on right now. I'm working on right now uh, writing a book, kind of in the same camp genre, but focusing on the uh, eastern uh, <laughs> east shore version of camping culture, kind of the. Um, New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine style of camping culture. So I'm, I'm working through that right now. But uh, long term, my my focus is more in uh, scripts uh, and horror. I wrote my thesis in, in horror uh, oh. <laughs> movies. In fact. Okay. Wow, that's great. So it's a wide wide range of topics that you can cover there. Yeah, but I mean, it's a wide range, but I think that long term, my focus is always going to be like the intersections between, you know, nature and particularly camping and how it's both uh, terrifying, challenging and eye opening. Right. So what I'm getting is that we're going to see a lesbian nature camping horror story coming out soon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't hold me to that. One can hope. One can hope. Uh, I know. We're so is exhausting and difficult but uh one can hope yeah it, i mean that would be i would totally be signed up for that one absolutely well good i'll quote you on that yeah yeah now uh do you think that your dad after doing this will want to create more stories with lgbt members of the community i think he yes i think he does and i think that uh in particular after this he wanted to explore um you know, the uh, male gay experience, and I think he's trying to figure out uh, <laughs> where he can find that earnest account, but right. that's a whole different story. Yeah, that would be great. I think that um, his ability to reach outside of his own experience and see others uh, and feel others, I think, is definitely come across, and I think that definitely is attributed to how you were able to communicate this to him. Um, I think that your, your background in English and writing has helped in order to bring that forward for him. Well, I think he has a particular uh, voice for not speaking for someone's uh, culture or background, but speaking for their story and who he wants them to be as a character. Right. Yes. And that definitely shows. Um, and I love that we were able to learn so much of Lee throughout this process um, and the storytelling that had continued on from beginning to end of this book that Lee had ex explained the depths of her life and things that she went through that um, someone like me, I was completely able to relate to. Other people would see it and go, wow, her life was so crazy. And I'm like, ah, that was my neighborhood. <laughs> well, I hope that other people go out and pick up a copy and relate to it just as much yeah exactly exactly this has been quite the adventure you guys um 1000 recommend this book the barons um again this is ellie johnson uh co-written with her father kurt johnson and the book is available at amazon barnes and noble wherever you can find your book we'll have some information on the link of this episode um Ellie, I want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to sit down and have this conversation so we can get this information out for the public because this book is amazing. 
uh, look forward to seeing more writings from you. I'm going to definitely hold you to it. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the, the support. Yeah, go out right now, Arcade Publishing. Google the Barron's book, and it'll come right up for you. Perfect. If you're anything like me, you despise touching the gas pump. I mean, think about it. People are running all over town, doing all sorts of things. Maybe they're working on cars and changing tires, or maybe they're changing their kids' diapers, or maybe they're just going around and touching things that everybody else did. And then they're putting their hands on the gas pump. And now you have touched everything that they have touched all throughout the day. Well, guess what? There is something that can help you with this problem, and it's called the Pump Pal. What is a Pump Pal? Well, I'm glad you asked. It is a glove that has a magnet in it so you can stick it inside the door of your gas tank. You can stick your hand right in there, pull the pump, not touch a thing. Keep your hands nice and clean, spick and span, and guess what? It is made from the silicone that you can clean when you get home, and you can keep it sanitized, and you don't have to worry about touching all the muck and bringing it home. So get your pump, pal. All you have to do is go to the link in this episode, click on it, get yours today, get one for your friends, get one for your family. Everybody needs this thing. Be safe, be clean, and get your pump, pal. For our episode ideas or to be a guest on the podcast, please send an email to lesbianspeaking at gmail.com. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash lesbian speaking. For $3 a month, you get a shout out. And for $5 a month, you get a shout out as well as access to an interactive chat with myself and other listeners. To place an ad on this podcast, please email lesbianspeaking at gmail.com. Lesbian speaking can also be found on Instagram, so be sure to go and give a follow.